another edition of Match of the Week, the series within the Let Me Tell You Something podcasting world, where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a match that we take turns in picking from the wide, varied world of professional wrestling. For this one, it's like a orgy at a kinky S&M factory. There are so many belts on display. <laughs> Simon, what are we talking about today? We are talking about a match for nine titles between Dean Malenko, pitiful little man that he is, just holding one championship, against Ultimo Dragon, who's got so many championships he needs Sonny Ono to help carry them to the ring. (laughs) It's going to be a fun one to talk about this one, because I was thinking... There's so much of the future of wrestling in there, but so much of what created the smarky... I guess the smart fan was already in existence in the 80s and everything. That was what Jim Cornette was a prototype version of. (laughs) (laughs) But this was the start of the sense in the fandom that size should not be an impediment to a wrestler's successes. Yes. Or that people of a smaller size in North America should be given more opportunities to be more high profile. And the reason for that, coming from the years of the build-up of the junior heavyweight scene in Japanese wrestling. And it's funny because we were talking in our previous match of the week about Owen Hart against Shiro Koshinaka. And I was saying that at that point in New Japan, the junior heavyweight division, it was more emphasis on the junior with the sense that most of the top stars of that division, your Hiroshi Hase's, your Nobuhiko Takada's, your Shiro Koshinaka's, and before then your Tatsumi Fujinami's, etc., would go on to graduate to the heavyweight division when they got a bit older and they made the step up in weight division, essentially. Yeah. And that it was really Jushin Thunder Liger who was so small in comparison to all the other guys in New Japan. He was like five foot six or so. And he was never going to be a believable heavyweight. He had nowhere to go, really. Yes, but he was so talented that they built the junior heavyweight division around him from the very start of the 90s. And the 90s was really the period where junior heavyweight wrestling became... The critical darling, I suppose you would say. And also was at its most popular. They were able to hold Super J Cup events in the Sumo Hall and draw a sold-out crowd just to see the junior heavyweights. Yeah. And that culminated two years after the Super J Cup with the creation of this J-Cram. Now, the J-Cram, what do you know of it, Simon? Were you aware of it at all beforehand? I knew about the, the Super J Cup, but not the crown. Okay, So the J-Crown was formed in mid-1996, and it was thanks to the interpromotional relationships going on in the junior heavyweight division, where they don't have to protect them as much. So it was a lot easier. You were more okay with your champion of your smaller division trading wins back and forth with other top stars in other junior divisions. So that's why Jushin Liger would engage and lose and win against guys like the great Sasuke and... Ultimo Dragon, etc., etc. Super Delphin had also reached the best of the Super Juniors final two years earlier. And they, in turn, had appeared in other promotions as well. Is that because they weren't like viewed uh, as like the stars and like the big ticket movers? So there was just like a, a more, like you say, a more relaxed mentality towards, let's just try and see what they can do against each other. I would say so, because when you look at how they're booked in the regular house show circuits of this time, the six-mans and everything, when they're not engaged in their own division, when they, as part of their faction teammates, will be in Chaos or Suzuki Goon or whatever, and it's like two heavyweights, two junior heavyweights, or a heavyweight and junior heavyweights, etc., it will be the junior heavyweight that will take the fall to the heavyweights. Sort of like how Masanobu Fushi came across sometimes in some of the stuff we saw. Exactly right, that he was, whilst he was the ace within the juniors division, when he's in the match with five heavyweights, he's the sixth-tiered wrestler as far as likelihood of winning, and most likely to be pinned. 
And probably why he got so bitter and shithousery. Exactly, because he had to work within that world. And so, with all those relationships in place, they thought, what would be a more exciting thing to do than to make a super junior title? And so, during the 96 G1 Climax, this was at a time still where the G1 Climax was quite short. It would be over maybe an extended weekend or two weekends of show. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, because the round robins would only be like four wrestlers. Ah, right, okay. Or it'd be a straight knockout tournament, so that would take less time. It wasn't really until the late, the really the 2000s that they established it as two blocks on a month-long tour, mm. essentially, as like the final set form of this tournament. So what they did was they created this championship of championships by getting eight different junior heavyweight champions to come together in the sumo hall and over the weekend, over an extended weekend, have a knockout tournament, which were all unification matches. Yeah. So you had the British Commonwealth junior heavyweight champion, which was Jushin Liger, which was Michinoku Pro's top junior belt. Then you had the IWGP junior heavyweight title. Then you had the NWA junior heavyweight title and the NWA welterweight title. The welterweight title was always... The welterweight division in general was really a Mexican term. Right. And I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to make your head scratch the idea of two different weight divisions, but it's just a catch-all term. There's no yeah, real... Obviously, because this is an audio-only format, uh, Law can just see me put, saw me pull a very confused face when I heard the term welterweight. Yes. Like, in Japan, they're called junior heavyweights. In Mexico, they were called, more often than not, welterweights. In North America, it was usually light heavyweights until WCW branded them cruiserweights. Sort of like how, like, football's called soccer in America, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got different terms for the division just below heavyweights. Then there's the UWA junior heavyweight title, which was another Michinoku Pro title. We'll get into that in a bit. It was both UWA and Michinoku Pro. WAR, Tenru's Wrestling Association R, or Wrestling and Romance Junior Heavyweight title. The World Wrestling Association Junior Heavyweight title. And the WWF Junior Heavyweight title. Way We'll get into that. So, the various champions of those belts are Jushin Liger, the Great Sasuke was the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion going at that point. So, a New Japan guy had a Michinoku belt and a Michinoku guy had a New Japan belt. Masayoshi Mategi was the NWA World Junior title. Holder Negro Casas was the welterweight champion. Shinjiro Otani was the UWA World uh, Junior Heavyweight champion. Ultima Dragon was the WAR champion. Gran Hamada was the WWA champion. And El Samurai was the WWF Light Heavyweight champion. Now, I just want to ask, did uh, anyone backstage at WCW offer... Ultimo Dragon, a large waste paper basket at any point. <laughs> no, because this is the thing. It's interesting how Japan operates with its championship belts, or at least how it used to operate. They always love the heritage aspect and the history aspect of wrestling more. And very often, it was a bigger deal if their top star won a championship in another promotion and brought that championship with them back to their promotion, and then would defend it there. Like a belt collector. In some ways, but it's also an easy way to get the lineage up, and ultimately within Japanese wrestling, until maybe around the 90s, where they went more insular, it had always been that Japan versus the world idea. Right. So that sense that Japan was entering this American sport through Ricky Dozan challenging Luthers. That it became the case that if this stuff came from America, that meant it had an even longer and more prestigious lineage than we could have just by inventing a brand new belt and trying to create lineage out of nothing. Makes sense, makes sense. That's why when Luthers dropped the NWA world title because he wanted to do more stuff in Japan, they invented the NWA international title for him to drop to Ricky Dozan in Japan. And so Ricky Dozan could claim he had a Luthers one title right. in Japan that wasn't the world heavyweight title. And that's why Baba essentially paid, well, not so much paid, but, you know, for grace and favour, asked to get short reigns with the NWA world title to be part of that prestigious lineage. Yeah. 
The Triple Crown is three separate championships. One is an NWA title, one's a Pacific Wrestling Federation title. I think the other one's an NWA title as well. By giving it the NWA name, and but basing it in All Japan, All Japan's inheriting the NWA lineage. And similarly, that was what was happening. The IWGP Heavyweight Championship was not created as an official belt to be defended outside of the IWGP League until 1987. Okay. So New Japan was operating for 15 years before they had their own in homegrown, inbuilt championship belt. Because by then, you know, you have the lineage and the prestige within yourself that you can give it to have Inoki win it through winning the tournaments the International Wrestling Grand Prix, which is what the IWGP stands for. Yeah. And then after that, create your IWGPs for tag team, junior heavyweight, and then junior heavyweight tag team, which would come the year after this. So, yeah, Jushin Liger had essentially taken junior heavyweight wrestling and tried to push it as hard as he could as, like, its ambassador, its champion, its ace, essentially. And so he created and pushed and booked the Super J Cup, Created new stars and great Sasuke for him to trade the belt with. Yeah. Had done similar stuff with Ultimo Dragon with a relationship with WAR. And so that's what the tournament was. So every the quarterfinals would be for two titles. And then the semifinals would be for four titles. And then those the two would reach the final and it would be for eight. The, the whole eight titles. Got you. And so New Japan, again, because they were the power politically more powerful out of everyone. They could... But the way that they can say it, it's okay, the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion was the true champion, but he was also an outsider when he won the tournaments. Mm. And Jushin Liger as well, unfortunately, had suffered a brain tumour around this time. So his actual quarterfinal match was over in like three minutes. Yeah. So whilst it was all his glory and idea and everything, he himself didn't get to... He got pinned by Ultimo Dragon in two and a half minutes. I'm assuming that was like a quick roll-up, like a couple of maybe like flatbacks, but nothing. Nowhere approaching like a dragon suplex or anything like that. I don't know. I have never seen the match, but it was obviously booked short for that purpose. And so in the end... The final was between the Great Sasuke and the Ultimo Dragon, and the Great Sasuke won it, so the Great Sasuke was the one that was carrying around those belts for that period of time. What was also curious about it was that in those days, New Japan, you'd average a title defense every two to three months. But because the J-Crown was a championship involving multiple promotions, it became more like a touring NWA world champion where they're going around all these different places yeah. defending it. So they're defending it in a New Japan show and a WA show and a Michinoku Pro show, etc. The Mexican titles basically had no home at this point. The UWA didn't really exist, but they took the lineage of the champion at the point that it ended and continued it on into Japan. It was kind of like incubated then. Yeah, kind of. Well, apparently, I just... Well, quite recently, Matt Cardona ended the 20-year reign of Rhino as the ECW television champion <laughs> in GCW. You wouldn't be surprised to hear. Oh. So, there's that as well. The British belt seemed to be kind of invented out of nothing. So, I think that the plans were in place for this before some of these belts even necessarily truly existed because it kind of came out of nowhere in mid in the mid 1995 right but it was a way of getting an eighth belt into the when british wrestling was on its ass really yes so to get back to the wwf title that was back when they had a relationship with new japan in the 80s and so they invented a wwf junior heavyweight championship that was won by tiger mask so Tiger Mask would have been the IWGP Junior Champion if there had been such a thing. But instead, they took the WWF name and took it to Japan. And occasionally, there'd be defences in America at the Madison Square Garden shows. But by the 1985, the relationship between WWF and New Japan had pretty much soured. Right. And they ended the relationship, but WWF didn't give a toss about junior heavyweights. <laughs> So the oh. junior heavyweight belt was just floating around in Japan during this time, and the WWF had no real idea of its existence. Such a Vince thing. What's that again? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but it had been replaced by the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship as the key championship of New Japan's junior division. So it was like a, a B title, like an ICOUS kind of thing? Well, it 
No, it, it went to Mexico in 84 during the Mexican relationship. So the top champion of it for the longest time was actually a guy that we covered in a very early match of the week, Villano the third. Trez. I, I think it's the third, not Trez. I think we mispronounced it during all that time. Oh. So, shame on us. But it was also held during that time that the UWA existed. So it was another junior belting UWA. And again, the WWF just wasn't paying attention. And so guys like the Pegasus Kid held it for quite a long time as well. Pero Aguayo. So because of the death of the UWA, they were able to bring in a couple of belts from there as well to bulk up this eight-belt title. And I remember that the Dynamite Kid, his last wrestling match, his first in a couple of years, was at a Michinoku Pro Show in October 96 at Sumo Hall. Very sad to watch. He has no muscle mass anything on him anymore and he can barely move yeah and they book him in a six-man tag opposite tiger mask and tiger mask he didn't uh keep to his strict diet let's put it that way during his time right yeah i'm fairly sure that there's a moment in bret hart's book which is not long after uh timeline wise where he visits him whilst they're doing a uk tour and brett's like what was happened here <laughs> well brett offered dynamite a a spot back in the WWF in late 92, after Davey Boy had left for WCW, he's like, you can come. This was still, he had a little bit of mass on him. He'd, he'd had his first retirement in 91, and then he started doing matches in the UK in 92, 93. But then Davey Boy Smith had filed a trademark on the British Bulldog, so he couldn't call himself the British Bulldog. And that was like the final straw that broke the camel's back, as, or broke Tom Billington's back as well. Yeah. Uh, as far as uh, their relationship being irreconcilable. So, yeah, that's the funny thing, that in 1996, we're watching a match in WCW, you know, the height of the Monday Night Wars, and one of the belts on display. You're Essentially, on this show, a WWF champion defeats a WCW champion yeah. for the WCW belts. Like, on paper, that sounds, like, amazing, but because you're, as you alluded to earlier, WWF cared not a toss about uh, cruiserweight action at this time. WCW both kind of did and didn't in so many ways. It was like, it was a great way to fill time up. And they were given the time and they were given the artistic freedom because they weren't really ever produced that much. I was going to say, it's funny you say fill time up because in our pre-recording talks that we have between ourselves, I, I sort of alluded to this, but I got that impression that this was a little bit of a padder as a match we'll go into it like more in detail as obviously we break down the match but Malenko especially just seemed to be filling time I disagree with that I think that that's your interpretation of the style of wrestling not fitting in with the more modern version of it I imagine you don't know much of 96 D Malenko I was five so no <laughs> yes but you've had 25 years in between to learn <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> Do you think in 1996 I was keeping track of every one of the eight belts in the lineage? Some of us do our homework. Now, knowing you as I do, Lorcan, part of me thinks you were. <laughs> no, I didn't have internet access at that point to do it. There were libraries, young man. But I was intrigued. Yeah, libraries stocking the old issues of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. <laughs> and Wrestling Observer Newsletters. Yeah. I wonder if the National Library could claim those. I guess they could, because they can, like, every book that's printed and has an ISBN number, the National Library should have a copy of. Yes. I guess it doesn't have an ISBN number, but, you know, they also collect all newspapers and everything. I mean, it's been around longer than some magazines have. If we ever do our road diaries, going on the road and seeing shows, and we go to London... We should take a stop off at the National Library and request Wrestling Observer back issues <laughs> to see if they just have see what them. happens. <laughs> just to see what happens. See if they have all the Power Slam magazines and everything. Ooh. Now that I could believe. So you got the Ultima Dragon coming in. And it was weird. It was like Cruiserweights were given presence on the show constantly. Yeah. And on the pay-per-views, they were given time to have matches. They even had their specialist commentator in Mike Tanay turning up. Yeah. Again, another, like, proto-Smark fan. We end up with, like, a four-man booth during this, which gets a little cluttered. 
It's a good. It's a strong booth. It's Heenan, Dusty, Shivani, and Mike Tanay. So that is a strong four man booth. But four four man booths just get too cluttered for me. Also, with the sense that every one of them's at least partially out to sabotage the other person throughout. Yes. Tony Shivani and Bobby Heenan never had a good relationship in commentary or in real life, apparently. Oh, okay. Yeah, Bobby never liked Shivani and thought he sort of no-sold him. And also, at this point, Bobby Heenan was in a weird place as a commentator because he was essentially a babyface at this point. Yeah. Because it was NWO versus the rest of the world, essentially. Which is not quite the name of the computer game, but (laughs) (laughs) it's getting there. He didn't back the NWO guys in their matches. And when it came to junior heavyweight wrestling, whilst Ultimo Dragon establishes along the way that he is the heel of this match, yeah, there's no sense of Bobby Heenan championing Ultimo Dragon. And so I do feel like Bobby Heenan, it was a combination of him being older, not agreeing with a lot of what wrestling was as time was going on, yeah, not being treated that well but because of the general anarchy and madness that was WCW at this point. And a commentator partnership that just didn't work with him. Yeah. He loved working alongside Gorilla Monsoon because they played off each other. Vincent Mann would play off each of him as well. He never felt that with Jim Ross, actually, if you listen to their stuff in 93. They aren't really getting along enough for it to work. Mm. Because I guess they came from different ideas of things. And the same with Shivani. And Dusty Rhodes is somewhat antagonistic as well. When Tony Schiavone says he's got a form of a half crab, it's just a half crab. Why don't you just call it a, <laughs> a half crab? A crab is a crab is a crab. <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby's keen to stick the boot in there as well, I noticed. Yeah, so Mike Tanay is essentially trying as best as he can to fit in as much history, context, you know, kind of what I'm trying to do here with you with your Bobby Heenan like yeah. interference, singing, lack of interest. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably the only time I'll be mentioned in the same sentence, so I'll take that. As Bobby Heenan? Yes. <laughs> You're more of a ferret than a weasel, I suppose. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so. But you no, you are right. Mike Tanay is facing a massive uphill battle <laughs> commentating on this match. Bless him. But he's still able to fit in really good little lines and pointing out even mistakes in the fact that they were they translated Ultimo into Ultimate as yes. like the Ultimate Warrior. And he's actually saying it's not in that sense. It's a sense that it's the final form, the final dragon, the yeah. last person to be trained by Bruce Lee. Oh, the ACI moonsault bit where Justin Rhodes is like, yeah, it's like, so it's the dragon moonsault? No, it's his real name. His real name's Dragon. No, it's not. In fairness, it can be confusing. I'm guessing you only registered about 50% of what I've said so far. You and the listener. If the, if both of you taken the other 50%, then you can sort of social media contact each other to figure out what it was I've been saying this whole episode. Yeah. But to be fair, I think Dusty's just trying to keep kayfabe there more than anything mm. else. I don't think he's being a dick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so Yoshihiro Asai, a.k.a. the Ultimo Dragon... I was saying to you before we started, you could make a case that he is one of the most influential figures in pro wrestling today. He founded Toriyumon, which became Dragon Gate, which is essentially the fastest pace that wrestling can go and introduce that fast pace of wrestling. Yeah. You know, that faster style. They eventually became the style that blew so many people's minds when they saw it on Ring of Honor from the few five-star matches of 2000. Basically, everyone in that promotion of the first run were trained by Ultimo Dragon. He also... Like Jushin Liger, because of his size, was not getting the opportunities in Japan. And like Jushin Liger, moved to Mexico where size was less of a factor. Yeah. And so therefore was more lucha trained. And therefore when he came back to Japan, he was able to fuse it to create that Jap lucha style that became the overriding junior heavyweight style of wrestling of the 90s. That then became the overriding wrestling style of the early noughts US indie scene, which then bled into WWE, TNA, and now AEW, and so much of what wrestling is now comes from those germinations of Tiger Mask, Dynamite Kid, plus Ultimo Dragon and Jushin Liger's experiences in Mexico, 
plus the fact that they trained so many and influenced so many at the right time for explosions in internet wrestling, tape trading, and so on. Yeah. And WCW's Cruiserweight division was really the first more mainstreaming of that in North America, as well as ECW as well, and the bringing in of guys like Rey Mysterio. And you've also got the fact that he trained uh, Kazuchika Okada. Exactly. If there's nothing else as a a sign of the power that he has right now. Because Okada was too young to go to the New Japan Dojo system and just wanted to be a wrestler as quickly as possible, he had to go elsewhere to be trained, and that was where he went to Ultimo Dragon. And that's why, before he was ever a young lion in New Japan, he would do odd things like appear at a Chikara show. <laughs> that's a match of the week for the future, isn't it? Yeah. Because Uchiro Okada, pre-young lion in Chikara. Yes, not his TNA stuff, definitely not that. I've never seen any of his TNA stuff, and I get the sense I should never bother. I think that is the sole reason they are very reluctant to lend out to major people, until very recently. <laughs> you got to promise me that Vince Russo is not involved in this. Yes. Because it was ultimately Vince Russo that led to the downfall of the Cruiserweight division in 99, when they started putting the belt on Medusa and Oklahoma, and, you know, all that nonsense. He just saw it as a toy. Yeah, he saw he saw all belts as props and toys. And true, true. Was an idiot and a sexist and a piece of shit. So, let's talk more about this match. So, I'm curious that you're saying that ultimate that Dimalenko wrestles a slow style. I think what it is is that he's wrestling the methodical, technical style. Yeah, that was through that was his bread and butter. So yeah, maybe slow is the wrong word, but. And maybe it's the com- what I'm hearing from commentary whilst this is going on. I think hit that combination creates an overall vibe that in terms of this pay-per-view, this match is there just to make it the full three-hour event, if you see what I mean. I disagree with that. WCW's roster was way too deep for you to need to time-fill anything. Yeah. They had a 60-man battle royal in three rings on the pay-per-view the month before this. So it's not like they're having to stretch it out with the lack of resources. They wanted to give this prestigious match the time it deserved. Mm. I don't know. And what I... they thought, it, and Dimalenko was a very popular figure. I mean, you listen to the reaction he gets from the crowd during this match. He is over like Rover because the cruiserweight division was essentially built around him from its formation six months earlier, and this is really the coming towards the end of his time in the cruiserweight division. Yeah, I'm not saying it's anything that like anything against Malenko wrestling a, a methodical style. I'm just saying the combination, when I watched it, obviously out of time, or, you know, not being in the moment, when you combine that with Heenan and like Rhodes just not really being asked, it just gives you that initial impression that it was just there to be there, which obviously isn't the case. But when you come at it from the angle that I've come at it, that's the impression I initially got. Well, that was the common complaint against the presentation of the Cruiserweights, that they would be given matches and they would be given spotlight, but you're not guaranteed that the commentators are going to be interested in even talking about the match that's in front of them. Mm. It became a running complaint that during all of these matches, it would just be them speculating about what the NWO is going to do or have just done or or are doing in the current time in split screen, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> so... One thing that also helped the Cruiserweight division was how little the NWO was involved in it. Outside of a few months where Sean Maltman, a.k.a. Six, was going after the Cruiserweight title and was the champion, they've really never involved the NWO for the longest time. The, the, the LWO were more involved in the Cruiserweight <laughs> division in late 98 than the NWO ever were, really. Yeah. So that helps. But also... I think one of the things that was interesting watching this match as well was, as you said, the, the pace wasn't always super fast, especially as what you would expect from what you know of junior heavyweight wrestling. But this was the Malenko-focused time of the junior heavyweight division, where it was mostly built around Malenko, who is more map-based, more technical. But what they would do would be bring in Lucha Libre wrestlers and the like very often yeah. to do the high-flying because that was always the funny thing when we were talking about Rey Mysterio and I think you were saying, oh, the dream matches we could have with him against Ricochet or, or someone along those lines. And I was like, 
outside of Psychosis and Juventu Guerrera, Mysterio's best matches have never been against fellow high flyers. Mm. You need that base to launch against. That Eddie provides. Eddie provides it, yep. Dimalenko provided it when... That was really the thing that brought the Cruiserweight Division to people's attention were the matches and a brief trading of the title between Rey Mysterio and Dimalenko. Because Dimalenko was small and fast enough to move with Mysterio at Mysterio's pace. But he was also bigger and more map-based and more powerful that he could dominate Mysterio on the mat and on with technical skills and also with big throwing moves. Like, I remember one of the best... I mean, Malenko always came up with amazing finishes to so many of his matches around this time. And one of them was he beat Rey Mysterio when they were in the corner. And he had him in a fireman's carry, lifted him up in the air, and as they were both dropping to the ground, uh, him with a knee, so it was like a gut buster. Oh, cool. So he would always come up with these really inventive super moves to win a match that are a semi-surprise. And it wasn't just Rey Mysterio. He was also having matches with guys like Disco Inferno, and they were more the North American end of things. <laughs> but... What is interesting watching this is... I've always said that maybe my favourite crowds are the Southern State wrestling fans. Because we're not overloaded with obnoxious chants outside of USA. Yeah. And that works really for this. That's how they're playing it up at times with Sonny Ono. Yes. There's one guy in the front row in a polo shirt that really is getting engaged in the USA team. (laughs) He turns to the crowd and starts pumping them up to do it. But what was interesting was it was almost reminiscent of the Japanese audiences for these sort of junior heavyweight matches where they're quiet and respectful until something big is hit and then they will react. Yeah. And that was always what was really good about the WCW crowds. They'd be maybe mumbly. It wouldn't be like silence. So there'd be a hubbub and everything. But if someone hits something good and big, mm. it got a big crowd cheer like a like a good tackle in a, an American football game. Or like a normal football game when it's like a lull and then... Someone that does a bit of skill or beats a man. Somewhat, but there's different because I, I think the American football analogy works more because American football is so much of nothing and then just suddenly something. Yeah. And that's kind of what this is. It's not nothing, but it's keeping it at a base level of engagement, technically sound mat work from both of them. And then just suddenly Ultimo Dragon charges and Malenko surprises him with a scoop power slam. Yes. And that yeah. gets a reaction from the crowd and they're loving it. And they're biting on all the near falls towards the end as well. What did you think of Ultimo Dragon's performance in this match? It was interesting that he was the heel. It was nice to see a a bit of Ultimo Dragon because one of the first WrestleManias I sort of like knew about, was it 21, where he falls over? 20. 20, yeah. At the Cruiserweights Open. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had a really rough time in WWE. Yeah. So I I was looking forward to this, purely to see some Ultimo Dragon. I disagree with his strategy of just using his uh, green mist at the entrance, but each to their own. I think you should save that for a later date. I don't think he was ever a mist guy. I don't recall Ultima Dragon being a guy that used mist. It was just, he's Japanese, do the mist thing. They love that. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose, yeah. It's like Tajiri wasn't a mist guy until he turned heel in ECW. Yeah. It's just, it's one of the things that Japanese... I guess it's better the mist than the salt in the eyes. That's, That's just rubbing... Salt in the wound as well. Yeah, although maybe in this uh, post-COVID world, salt's probably more hygienic. Perhaps, perhaps. Well, it was always it was more hygienic before then as well. It's not like oh, you can't even spit on people now. COVID. <laughs> it's, it's wokeness gone mad. Uh, <laughs> all right, I take your point. They've renamed the Midget Gems Junior Gems. Oh God, can we not? <laughs> I don't want to go down that path of how much time that took up on a fucking political debate show. <laughs> but did you get my little reference there to the very brief junior division in WWE? Yes, yes. Because <laughs> they're actually called, what are they called? Mini gems. Yeah. Yeah, fine. So, <laughs> this will actually be a bit out of time by the time this goes out. So that won't I don't care, I'm still annoyed by it. <laughs> You're annoyed at the annoyance. Let's yes. be clear there. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so this was, of course, Malenko was frequently referred to by Kevin Nash as one of those vanilla midgets. Mm. But that was, and um, when he went to the WWE, they turned it into a characteristic, not like a Lance Storm thing, 
But they, well, they, it was weird actually when Malenko went to WWE and everyone thought, oh, now he's going to be treated properly. He was treated in WCW a hell of a lot better than he was in WWE. Yeah, he came over as like one of the radicals, didn't he? Yeah. And it was funny because I want to rewatch the No Way Out match that they had, the radicals against Rikishi and Too Cool. At the time, I was so furious because they had the radicals lose so soon after they come in. But one of the things I remember about that was Malenko was a really good shit house. Yeah. And I was reminded of that when I watched Masanobu Fushi in those six man tags and I was like, I wonder if Malenko's modeled it on Fushi. That because he because he was an all Japan junior heavyweight in the mid eighties before he then moved to New Japan for like he was part of the Super J Cup, losing in the first round to Gado. How embarrassing <laughs> 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 So, yeah, Dimalenko had been who the Cruiserweight division had been built around at this point. And then after this, he moves on to the US title scene. He does win the Cruiserweight title back from Ultimo Dragon, but then he drops it to six. And that sparks him going to the US title scene because Eddie Guerrero was the US champion. Oh, so okay. The Cruiserweights were allowed to mingle more and a bit higher up on the mid-card, the top tier of the US. Like your US or your TV title kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And Ultimo Dragon himself actually got in- involved in the TV title scene in 97 with uh, Steven Regal and Prince Ayakea. So these were seen as like the top of the, the best of the best, essentially. But what's also funny watching this is the politics of it is so visible in how strongly Malenko is booked in the second half of the match. Yeah. Because the thing that confused me a little bit about it because of my understanding of how North American matches are structured and you know they're playing up to that with the whole Japan versus USA and having Ultimo Dragon spit mist and that he's the heel that's more he's the more aggressive heel out of this match mm. because he's from that there Japan <laughs> <laughs> he uh Malenko both does the mid-match limb work and the baby face <laughs> comeback <laughs> At the same, like, one follows the other. Yeah. It was very odd. Ultimo gets next to nothing in in the second half, maybe even the final two-thirds of the match, because he does dominate... Well, Malenko dominates on the on the map for the most part, then Ultimo Dragon just finally gets overly aggressive after their sort of friendly sportsmanship elements. And then he starts stomping and being more mean and with his holds and everything. But when he does something, something that hurts his knee... After that, Malenko takes control and does the limb work. And then, really, from that scoop power slam, it's then the finishing sequence where he's getting the babyface flurry as well, hitting all these big moves on Ultimo, and Ultimo barely kicking out of numerous late kickouts from Ultimo Dragon. Yeah, there's like a brain buster, which is like a real, like, it looks really, like, impactful as in, like, the way it's executed. Well, that's the thing with Malenko. Everything he did, he did well. He was, again, one of those excellence of execution type mm. wrestlers. But yeah, it's a tombstone reversal spot. That was always a popular one in the cruiserweight division anyway. And that got a huge reaction from the crowd. He did a double underhook powerbomb. He did a brain buster. All these ones that were like... You expected a three count from the way that he hit them so well. Yeah. And the ultimately, the... Ultimately... Hey. <laughs> no, ultimately... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The pedant in you kicked in there. It's somewhere between a cradle and a big move that wins it for Ultimo. He hits a tiger suplex semi out of nowhere. And Malenko's kicking furiously to escape it. So it's more like a pinning combination than a knockout blow. Yeah. And that when the three counts registered, Malenko's, you know, up on his feet and just... So frustrated that he got caught. And Ultimo Dragon's just in utter shock. <laughs> it's like, I'll take it, I'll take it. <laughs> mm. But that's the politics of it, I think. Because yeah. they're dropping it to the outsider person. It's like, well, we've got to make our guy look as strong as possible. Because you're going to come out of this holding nine belts. So you don't have to worry about looking a little bit like you got it out. <laughs> you know, snuck out of it at yeah. the last minute. And that was after Sonny Ono had in... Not interfere, but jumped on the apron when Malenko had the cloverleaf spot, which is a very, which is like the most North American element to this more Japanese influenced yeah. style, like the little cop to it. Sonny Ono was a funny one because he was a longtime friend of Eric Bischoff, like in real life, yeah, and still is to this day. 
So it was just Bischoff's like, oh, you're of Japanese heritage, so you can be the guy that just brings in every new Japan talent that we've got in our talent exchange. <laughs> so he was like Yuji Nagata's manager when Nagata was doing his learning excursion. And the year before at Starcade 95 had been a WCW versus New Japan best of seven series. So Sonny Ono was out for maybe two two hours of the three-hour pay-per-view <laughs> at ringside. Bring your dinner with you. You'll be here a while. <laughs> But what's funny as well was so it was just are you Japanese? You come in with Sonny Ono. Yeah. Because the next match on the card was Akira Hokuto fighting Medusa for the women's title, and so Sonny Ono was out for that match as well. Jeez. Yeah. So Sonny Ono, <laughs> my my favorite example of that though that they didn't present him very strongly or very cleverly because when the NWO Japan was formed, that was an angle that happened in Japan. And then at the next Nitro, Chono comes out with Ono. And to Ono's shock, at one point, Ono reveals his NWO shirt. (laughs) If you just kept your Observer subscription up, Ono, you'd have known this was coming. Does Ono learn his lesson? No, he doesn't. A few months later, he's going to send out the great Muta to beat Chono. Oh, but it turns out Muta a few days earlier had joined the NWO back in Japan as well. Jeez. He literally had a shirt in his luggage. How did you not see? <laughs> oh. So yeah, Ultimo was the one that had won the, the J Crown off of the Great Sasuke. Also on Starcade, they'd had Jushin Liger there because, as part of the relationship agreement, Liger had a match with Rey Mysterio later on in the show. So oh, okay, you know, the juniors were given a lot of time and space, and Japanese talents in particular. You know, they had three Japanese talent go over. Theoretically, WCW guys in Malenko, Medusa, and Mysterio. Yeah. All the M's. Mm, bot, bot. On their head <laughs> with the belt. And then and then on the next night's Nitro, for some reason, they had Ultimo go over Jushin Liger, even though they were going to have the same match at the Tokyo Dome on the 4th of Jan, or, or less than a week later. But again, I think it was like, Let's make sure that the WCW guy, because he is now our WCW Cruiserweight champ, because I did, just out of curiosity, put on the next Nitro, because I knew that that match had happened, because a lot of people were pissed off that they did a match in two minutes that would then be done. And that was not because of Liger's health, it was just, yeah, two minutes, kid, and that's it. Yeah, that's good, though. Go on. Because the thing that drove me crazy about this was, like, you build it up as the nine-belt match, and Ultimo gets given the Cruiserweight belt. It's like, I want to see how they manage the nine belts how he manages to hold the nine belts they don't even show that he's off they do the action replay with bobby heenan doing like his one regular job every night now which is just to recap it on the video replay yeah and then when it comes back he's gone he's buggered off so i never got to see nine belts ultimo there are pictures out there of nine belts ultimo so then i'm like okay i want to see how he looks like when he comes out for wcw nitro the next night the next night he's just wearing the cruiserweight belt (laughs) i was like what the fuck shocking What's the point? I guess the logic was this was a cruiserweight belt defense, but the cruiserweight belt never became a part of the J-Crown because Ultimo lost the J-Crown to Liger, but he didn't lose the cruiserweight belt right. to Liger. He lost the cruiserweight belt to Malenko a couple of weeks later at a Clash of the Champions. So that was, again, the political back and forth, the, the negotiations of these things. Yeah. So then Liger was the J-Crown champ, and this is where it starts to fall a little bit apart. Because it's only so long you can hold on to this. So WAR called back their belts during Liger's reign. So Liger dropped the WAR belt. So at that point, the J-Crown was a seven-belt championship. And then finally, after a year and a bit of the Cruiserweights being the talk of wrestling and you know being really popular and a, and a key part of Nitro's programming, Vince goes, okay, I'll make a light heavyweight championship. <laughs> and I don't want anyone that good in it. And Jerry Lawler's got my son. Yeah, he'll do. <laughs> At that point, they find out, ah, we'll create our new light heavyweight belt. There's a what? <laughs> it's where? <laughs> <laughs> it's been on what? <laughs> Who let this happen? You? <laughs> so they demand that belt back. And at that point, all the belts get broken up whilst Shinjiro Otani is the champion. Ah. Uh, and everything goes back to where That's got to be good. Yeah, but yeah. I, uh, seven. No! <laughs> <laughs> ah, 
It was a house of cards. No, <laughs> it was a belt. Okay. Don't ruin my metaphor. <laughs> oh, dear. But for, for its brief existence, it will again be one of those great symbols of what junior heavyweight wrestling became in the 90s through the efforts of Ultimo Dragon and Jushin Liger and the great Sasuke, Eddie Guerrero, and in Japan, and then in the US, Dean Malenko. Dean Malenko was a great gateway to introduce all these high flyers and, like I said, give that base for them to be the spectacular people, the spectacular styles. And, you know, even though he is the heel, it is Ultimo Dragon that gets to do the acai moonsault to the outside. (laughs) Kind of got to let him. Yeah. What I did love was how they did the tope in this match. Because now we're at a time where every match has a tope in. I liked how they did it in this one a lot more than most topes have done, which is he goes to do it. Malenko initially dodges it, but that means that he's in place when he just does a full circle around because Ultimo's done a fake out. He moonsaults back into the ring. Yeah. And then his time of sprinting back coincides with the time that Malenko turns around, but not in time enough to be a gormless idiot standing there for ages. Yeah. He gets caught. That's what you've got to try and do the best with these sort of dives. You've got to time it. You can't just have six people sort of awkwardly brawling with each other. <laughs> Waiting for the guy to arrive. One person at the back hitting really weak forearms on the back of someone who's not selling it because they're looking up in the air for some yeah. reason. If, I, if, if you're doing your topes, do them like this match. Make it, make it work. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we talked all around the match. I think it's a really good match... Because it's differently paced, but everything's done well. The only thing that slightly goes wrong is at one point Malenko does a nip up, but he kind of his knee buckles a little bit on him. But that's it, really. Everything is executed to perfection. Both guys look good. It's paced differently. The structure, like I said, is bizarre that Malenko does the heel beatdown and the babyface comeback. <laughs> but what are you going to do? <laughs> but I love how engaged the crowd was, that it was as close as. You know, an American crowd gets to being their version of the respectful, but diligent and attentive. I mean, they weren't as attentive, but something big happened. It got a reaction. Yeah. And Malenko, I'll I tell you one thing I always also love was Malenko's entrance theme. WCW themes were usually very basic and often just rip-offs of pop songs. But this was one of the ones that really, it was just a little basic synth to a beat of dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 yeah. dun. It's kind of like the Imperial March or something from Star Wars. Yeah, it's got an ominous feel to it. But it worked for Malenko's thing of him being this remorseless, ice-cold, not-that-emotive guy. In, so when WWE do it, they turn him into a suave Bond sophisticates, <laughs> but not really. And he tries to shack up with Lita. Right. And it doesn't really work out. But if you want to talk about a hidden gem of wrestling, if you want to see... A brief moment where Malenko was able to Malenko in WWE. You've got first his Fushi tribute act in that six-man tag. But also, if you've never watched it, the match he has with Scotty Too Hotty for the light heavyweight title in Backlash 2000. Oh, okay. That's a really good gem. And like I was saying with Malenko's inventive ways of finishing matches off without it being a, a traditional finisher. I won't give it away, but the way that they finish that match... It's really, really good. And that was the brief moment I was excited that they could do something with the light heavyweight division because they literally had had S.A. Rios hold it. Well, no, S.A. Rios had won it from Gilberg, who'd held it for over a year. And then S.A. Rios won it from him, but very soon after that, Malenko won it from him. And that, I think, triggered the Lita feud that moved... No, no, it didn't, no. But I do remember that... Lita did do a spot where she tried to run a Guerrero from the apron because that was his big uh, big thing at the time, like mimicking S.A. Rios's moves. Yeah. And Malenko just powerbombed her on the <laughs> ground. Like viciously with one arm in a sling. <laughs> Amazing. But then when she went with the Hardy Boys, they did that storyline of Malenko perving over her. So right. we could perv over her. But we'll save that because Lita will be a topic of discussion very soon in a in an episode we've got booked down for later on in the year. Yes. But is there anything else you want to add to this match, Simon? No, you no. were a very good listening student to my potted history there. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm good. I've covered uh, everything I want to cover. What would you give this match then? What sort of thing would you rate it as? I would go four, I think. Yeah, like around that, yeah. 
I'd say like three and a half, four. I would love it if more junior heavyweight, smaller guy matches had a bit more logic and control and willingness to not just go high spot oriented. The high spots are portioned out and they still get big reactions from the crowd. Yeah. And everything's just technically competent. No one does anything they can't do. Ultimo was always a great fun one I remember watching in Nitro. I always used to love the spot he did on Nitro matches where he'd do the headstand in the corner and wrestlers would charge at him and he'd kick them away. <laughs> Whenever I was watching Nitro back in 98, if Ultimo Dragon came out, I knew I was going to get a fun match. Yeah, you're going to have a good time watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another weird thing about the Ultimo Dragon was it was one of the few times I played a SmackDown game and you kind of randomly assigned a faction and I was given a faction of... My creator wrestler, I think. Which might have been Kijimuto, because I was able to create Kijimuto within the game. Oh, okay. And Rikishi and Ultimo Dragon. And they just put that group together randomly, and they just fit them within the mechanics, and one guy does the promos, and I accidentally picked Ultimo Dragon as our promo guy. (laughs) So you got Ultimo Dragon cutting all of these long English language promos for on behalf of us during the whole game storyline brilliant but it is a real shame that the ultimo dragon that we have since then has been his biggest legacy in wwe was slipping on his cape yeah twice that's the crazy thing he did it twice in that moment because he was brought in to be like Rey mysterio's big rival when Rey mysterio was briefly in the cruiserweight division but vince is gonna vince you know, the only other thing i know about him was that Apparently, Stephanie's nickname for him was the Ultimo Hottie because apparently Yoshihiro Asai is another one of those masked guys that is inexplicably ho- covering a quite a handsome face. Yes. <laughs> but there we go. Have you seen that thing recently that was said about uh, people wearing masks in public, these face masks? We actually are much more attractive with them because <laughs> you're not seeing any weak jawlines or, <laughs> or rotting teeth or anything. I suppose. I suppose, yeah. I never yeah. really thought of it that way. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to miss it. <laughs> you say that, you won't. But anyway, Simon, if you want to get in touch with you with more Ultimo Dragon or Dimalenko recommendations, how can they do so? You can get in touch with me on Twitter when I'm selling a Simon Cross free. Free for the number of points in the hairline of Dimalenko. Nasty Widow's Peak, the likes that will make Victoria blush. <laughs> One last thing as well. I mean, I was such a belt nerd. I just love the idea of holding eight belts and how you would do it. And I did like how he took the two NWA belts, which were basically the same, and used them as like a neck, <laughs> as, a, as a, the neck chain. Thing, yeah. Where they're fastened around his neck. I always love that. Uh, my name is Lorcan Munnan. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for author, N for novelist. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. You can get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. Barring any five-star matches between this episode and the next episode, what can we expect for our next match of the week, Simon? Our next match is a dog collar match between CM Punk and... And Raven taking place at Death Before Dishonor in 2003. That is the 19th of July 2003, in fact. But anyway, there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.